Okay, everybody, welcome. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. We're back uh, in business after a week off. Uh, I have uh, been away and I'm like extra late to apparently to make up for being away. Actually, I have a kind of excuse tonight. Right before I was about to start class, I got called upstairs for some emergency IT support. I'm the emergency IT support guy in our household, so... You know, I'm sure some of you know how that kind of thing is. Anyway, my apologies uh, for being late. Um, but no, Gilgit, I have not quite ceded that to my children yet. The day will come. I think, see, the thing is, I think the one who's really going to be the tech support in the family is the younger one, and he's already in bed. So, you know, I had to do what I had to do. All right. Uh, <laughs> so, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, good to see so many of you. I saw that we have uh, uh, we have another person here live who uh, Enikon, yeah, who uh, has just done the heroic catching up job, uh, which is it's always very admirable to see people who have uh, listened to all you know sixty nine back episodes and caught up with us. So uh, you know it's hardly surprising, of course, when somebody would catch up and pass us reading the text. It's uh, much more. Noteworthy when somebody catches up with us actually viewing all the classes. So uh, glad you uh, glad you could make it with us uh, here tonight live. And again, that's great. Um, so anyway, uh, my announcements tonight. Uh, I just have a few quick things. Um, for did I mention? the thing i'm trying to remember what happened it was all a blur um i did want to i'm sure you guys have all heard but i don't think i've had class yeah the last time we had class was still in july so yeah uh, uh since we had class of course later on in that same week we had the official higher education commission meeting where signum university was unanimously approved it's so its program has been approved by the higher education commission of the state of new hampshire unanimously as i might point out uh so that um is uh, a really big deal, right? That's uh, 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 fantastic news, and we're you know now sort of on to the on to the the next thing. So yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's 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 the really big news now. But the other thing I wanted to announce is we are entering into now the 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 heat of our regional moot season, um, our regional events which we you know st which we started to add last year. This year uh, we're adding even more, so we're adding sort of a whole other layer of uh, of events for this uh, for this coming year. So let me tell you a little bit about what's coming up. We have, of course, four very definite ones that are coming up very soon. One, which is coming up this Saturday, August 18th, in San Francisco, in Oakland, technically, uh, Baymoot. Um, I'm excited. I'm going to be flying out to Baymoot on Friday. That's why I won't be around for my Grifflet stream on Friday afternoon, because I will be in the air flying towards California in order to meet folks in California. So um, we will be having Baymoot, as I say, this coming weekend. But there's more. Uh, Middle Moot in Kansas City, Missouri is going to be happening at the beginning of October. So Saturday, October 6th is Middle Moot. Then later in the month, we have an official date. Uh, we have an official date for LA Moot, our Southern California Moot. We've been uh, wanting to put together a Southern California event for many years. Many people have been rooting for that for a long time. It's finally happening. LA Moot is happening, uh, and that is going to be on the 27th of October. Um, you can look up. There's a uh, there's a nice um, um, 
uh, website that they've created. It's a, a beautiful website, uh, just lamoot.org. Uh, so if you go to that, you can find some uh, details, including the call for papers uh, for LA Moot. Um, so yeah, so LA Moot at the end of October, October 27th, and then we have Magnolia Moot, our, our Southeastern regional moot, uh, which is going to be happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that will be uh, on the 10th of November. Uh, so the 10th of November, and then we're going to have a little, um, um, we're going to have a little, uh, 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 hiatus, a little moot hiatus. We're not going to have a moot in, in December, but then we'll be back in January for tax moot. Tax moot part two, uh, is having, or not part two, uh, mark two, right? Uh, uh, the, the second annual tax moot, uh, will be happening. We're moving south a little bit in Texas. We're going to be in Waco this year. We were in Fort Worth last year. We're going to be in Waco this year. Um, uh, so that's going to be really cool. It's going to be the 19th of January. And we have uh, some other things brewing. We're thinking and talking about a Seattle moot. We're thinking and talking about, uh, oh, we're making some active plans now for a New England moot at last. People have been giving me a hard time about the fact that I live in New England and have never organized a New England moot. Uh, so we're, uh, yeah, yeah, Gilgir, just asking about that. Yes, we do have news about that. Um, we're, we don't have a date yet, but we're working on that. Um, it'll probably be in the spring uh, next. Uh, so we're, uh, uh, so we're going to be, we're going to be working on that. Um, Omali, Orlando is definitely, it's on my list of places I'd really want to go. We don't exactly, the, what, what we don't have yet, uh, is a clear, um, you know, somebody who's who, a, a local person. We always need a local person who's willing to step forward and, and kind of be the primary contact person and, and sort of mover of events down there locally in order to get us started. So, um, if you want to help to, to, to work to host Orlando Moot, we can totally make that happen. Um, but anyway, I don't know. Uh, I think um, uh, that would... Yeah. Amethorn says the family would insist on going to an Orlando Moot. Yeah, I kind of am thinking my family would insist on that, uh, certainly. So, um, anyway, uh, it's... Um, it's all going to be good. So, uh, by the way, Warrior Dude, I look at the, twi the Twitch chat as well as... The I'm looking at Discord. We have a Discord channel for the class. That's primarily where I'm looking for stuff. Um, but uh, I do check that sometimes there, too. So, anyhow, um, we're... Um, yeah, oh, Tony, absolutely. I would love, I would love to uh, see uh, Orlando Moot happen. Like, February would be perfect for Orlando Moot. Uh, that'd be, that'd be great. So anyway, all those things are coming. So again, we've got four happening in the next few months, and then Tex Moot coming in January, and then, you know, the uh, two others that are uh, very strongly in the pipeline. And of course, we're going to do Europe. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to go back to Europe again. Uh, and we'll do, uh, uh, we'll either do London mood again, or we'll do something, something similar somewhere nearby, uh, over there, uh, in Europe. It's definitely going to happen over there in Europe again this year. And that'll probably be in the spring as well. So lots and lots of regional events coming, uh, coming along. I certainly hope that you'll be able to find one that's relatively near to you, uh, that you can come, you know, one of the goals of this is to create more and more opportunities, uh, for people to be able to, to, to connect, to get together. I'd love to connect with you and I'd love to, I, I love to help, uh, just kind of see people, uh, uh, be able to connect with each other at events like this. So anyhow, that's what we're, um, that's what we're working on. Oh, Rin Roos, I, I wanted to, 
I had something I wanted to say to you. I was just looking through the discussion board today. So many wonderful comments. I'm not going to have a chance to talk about them all. But, uh, Rinrus, you were talking about um, how the long poems would be sung, right? And thinking about that. And it was just really funny because you linked to, uh, uh, was it Gordon Lightfoot's uh, uh, Railway Trilogy? And it was just funny because when I read that um, on Monday, I had just heard that performed live uh, two days before, like I, the entire railroad trilogy, uh, it was really cool. Uh, I was at this uh, local folk music performance on Prince Edward Island when I was out there, uh, and like this Canadian guy did, he's like, you know, this is one of the you know the greatest uh, you know uh, songs in the modern history of Canada, and I was like, oh, awesome. Uh, anyway, so I you know, and and I was li- I was listening to him, and I was thinking about you know sort of uh, the the this this kind of narrative song uh, tradition and. Uh, uh, certainly thinking about so I mean it's funny because the you know the the feel of it didn't really I mean it wasn't really striking me exactly like um uh like uh, a lot of Tolkien's verse um but I certainly um I certainly agree that um that kind the 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 way I mean the way that you were pointing to the to the Railroad trilogy as using you know the same basic meter and yet having very different feels and different parts of it. I very strongly believe that a lot of Tolkien's long poetry would work like that, even when the the meter is relatively uniform. Um, one of the things uh, you know that I uh, you know Steve that I kind of think back to um, one of the coolest performances, um, sort of recitation performances I've ever been to was Benjamin Bagby's uh, recitation of Beowulf and Anglo-Saxon. This, you know, this, this, this awesome guy who goes around and he, he performs Beowulf in the original um, with a, a, a sort of period authentic harp uh, accompaniment. And um, he's really, really good. And uh, the, the way that he modulates you know, in his performance of Beowulf, the 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 pace and the tone. He's not. He wasn't really singing. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't exact. So I mean, it's not directly parallel, but there's certainly a kind of dynamism to that kind of long performance. Um, it's definitely not a question of sort of settling into. When I talked about you know the regularity of the iams in the fall of uh, Gilgalad, um, one of the things uh, when you just read it. You know, like when you're reading it off the page, it kind of gets in your it kind of gets in your head, you know, and um, uh, it, it, you can't. I mean, there's some poets whose whose lines are really regular. Um, I think particularly of um, John Gower. I'm thinking of you know the, all the reading that I did in, pre- in preparing for my oral exams in grad school, uh, and the Confessio Amantis by John Gower. Wonderful, you know, one of the great Middle English uh, writers. Um, you know, in the Chaucerian, who wasn't Chaucer in the Chaucerian period. Uh, and holy cow, he was, um, um, he was, uh, uh, the poem is tremendously long and it's an iambic tetrameter and it's very, very regular. And you just like, I, I find myself swaying as I'm reading it. You know, I mean, you just read it. It goes on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. It's like, now again, in a real performance, like with a real performer, somebody actually singing and playing instruments and, and real, it wouldn't be like that, right? I mean, even that poem wouldn't be like that. But when you're reading it off the page, it just, you know, it kind of, you get, you know, you just get like totally hypnotized by it. Um, anyway, so um, 
I, uh, I definitely, um, uh, I definitely think that it would be, it would be something that would be definitely, uh, um, would be changed up at, at, at certain times and that you could do that through, through pace, through, um, uh, uh, through different kind of melodic changes, uh, without even really fundamentally changing the rhythm. I definitely think that that's kind of how, how that would go. Um, anyway, cool. Awesome. All right. So, uh, that I, <laughs> Steve, I wasn't even planning to talk about that, but I saw you here and I, I was just remembering your comment and, uh, couldn't put it on a slide, but, uh, uh, but I wanted to mention it. Okay. Let us get back to the text, right? Because that's what we're doing. I've already gone AFK once and I haven't even started my slides. It's a bad sign. Um, so let's go back to Weathertop here. All right. Um, Whoa, look at me zipping through. Yeah, that's pretty much the pace at which we do slides, right? That's absolutely how we work around here. Okay, um, uh, Matt made a, a couple awesome posts. Uh, I wanted to post at least one of them here and talk about that. Uh, he was pointing out a second illusion in Bilbo's translation, and I thought that that was really neat, right? So, um, so here, this is part of his post. It's not the whole post, but this is part of it anyway. He says, we talked a bit about Bilbo's allusion to the ring poem in the final line of the poem in Mordor, where the shadows are, uh, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Although we did not touch on how well his economizing of the line works and his changing of the uppercase shadows to lowercase. That is really cool. I hadn't even noticed that. That's, uh, that's actually a pretty awesome little detail. Um, when, uh, when Sam sings it, right, in Bilbo's song, it's not, so when the elves talk about it in the in the in the rhyme of lore, they're capital S shadows, right? Um, Mordor is where the shadows live. Uh, whereas for um, for Bilbo, right, writing this poem, it's just shadowy there, you know. Uh, nice, uh, nice strong flashlight. You you can solve that problem, right? I mean, it is really cool how it kind of makes. Uh, it it's quoting the line right, or at least it's paraphrasing the line, uh, and it it's you know alluding to the sort of the serious of na- uh, the seriousness of that, but it's it's a lot less intimidating. Um, anyhow, but moving on, but that's not the only illusion. Uh, Matt points out associated with the poem. Here's the final stanza. But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say, for into darkness fell his star in Mordor, where the shadows are. Now let's look at one of Bilbo's more famous works, the one he sings when leaving Bag End on his penultimate adventure, and which Frodo will sing after leaving Bag End behind when he sets out. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way, where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say." It's that final line, Matt says, that appears to echo the question of where Gilgalad now dwells. And I really like this echo, Matt. I was really struck by that when you pointed it out. Um, and where he dwelleth, none can say. Um, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some more larger way where many paths and errands meet and whither then I cannot say. Um, now, on the one hand, you know, Matt, as you pointed out, you know, you one could argue that this is just a kind of a simple verbal e- echo, right? Especially since the echo here um, is um, the echo here is is of a, a sort of a verbal expression on the part of the speaker, 
right? Um, uh, you know, none can say or or, uh, or or I cannot say. Here's the thing, Matt, that, that really struck me about this and that I really liked about this connection. And that is, we were already kind of, well, I don't want to quite say puzzling, but uh, sort of puzzling about the uh, where he dwelleth, none can say line, right? Several of you, when we were talking about it, um, your first reactions was, what are you talking about? Yes, we can say. We know exactly where he is, right? In fact, several of you were, in fact, pointing out that there's, there's a kind of irony in that line, right? I mean, you know, where men now dwell, none can say. That sort of mystery, the mystery of where men go after they die, is alluded to frequently throughout the course of The Lord of the Rings. But um, with elves... There's not much mystery, right? We know exactly where Kilgallad dwells now, more or less, right? You could say General Valinor region, right? Is he still in Mandos or not? Who knows? But again, it's not exactly mysterious. Um, so again, we we had already kind of drawn attention to the fact that, like, why should he go out of his way to say none can say uh, there? Um, and um, so. Matt, this is, this is, this is, that's what I really liked about this, right? Is that it really, it really seems to kind of touch on that. Um, The primary thing that I was thinking of when I was kind of putting these two stanzas next to each other is what both of them have in common, right? Think about the, the Gilgalad poem as we were talking about it um, uh, before. One of the things that's most striking about it is the overall, um, uh, is the overall um, hobbit orientation right the 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 shire centricity of this poem right this is a teaching poem by hobbits for hobbits yes it's on the you know it's it's a rendering of this uh this this heroic elvish poem but it's it's been reoriented for hobbits right um, and, uh, so again, when we talked about that in the context of the line before long ago, he rode away, right. As if him leaving the lands, you know, in the general area of the Shire is the end of the story instead of the beginning of the story, right. As it would be in any other account, uh, of the war of the last Alliance. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, um, but here's here's my thinking about that. As Marianne was just suggesting, um, to hobbits in the Shire, how much do they know about Mandos, right? Um, where elves go when they die is presumably just as mysterious to most hobbits. But more importantly, but it's not mysterious to Bilbo, right? Bilbo personally knows the answer to the question. Where does Gilgalad still dwell, right? That's one of the things that, to me, makes that line kind of conspicuous. And that is, to me, where the similarity lies. Now, like, is are these two lines talking about exactly the same thing? No, they're not. But what I do think, um, the the kind of parallelism of the two of them does seem to me to, to, to kind of point in the same direction. I won't go much further than that, uh, you know, in saying that they're, okay, and it's not that they're necessarily directly allusions to each other or that, um, uh, that like one is making reference to the other or anything quite like that. But, but again, the thing that they're doing is both, uh, is, is similar. What again? So why say where he dwelleth, none can say because where he does dwell is a place which is both 
mysterious, not mysterious in the sense of unknown, right? But mysterious in the sense of inaccessible to hobbits, right? Not to other elves, right? The Elvish translation probably doesn't talk about it that way, but a hobbit translation does, right? From the point of view of the Shire, from the hobbit perspective, where elves go is a mystery because they can't get there until Bilbo himself, of course, delightfully, right? But but anyway, um, we'll come back to that in a second. Uh, he uh, f- to, to hobbits, they go off into the West. In fact, arguably, taking the straight road off into the West, I know Gilgalad died. He didn't go back to the West by ship. But still, where elves go, either in death or when they depart from the Havens, is actually almost more mysterious than where humans go or, and hobbits go when they die, right? The death of hobbits, the death of, of mortals, that's a daily thing, right? That's, that's normal. That's daily life in the, hob- uh, in, in the Shire, right? Everyone's familiar with that. What elves do, right, and where elves go, that's mysterious, right? Sailing, sailing, sailing away and leaving us, right? The West to which, you know, that fairy, capital F, um, as, as the, you know, the term used in The Hobbit, that's a mysterious place, right? Um, so he's pointing to this kind of mystery, and that association with mystery is, notice, it's connected here in the poem with leaving the Shire, far behind, right? He rode away from us, where we are, and went to this, the mysterious elvish place, right? through death, in his case, Right. Um, but whether it's through death or whether it's like a Arendel did right in the other poem that Bilbo is going to sing uh, before, uh, you know, uh, before too long here. Um, this is uh, uh, all of them point to this sort of this this magical uh place which is a which is a mystery uh in a deeper sense in a more spiritual sense um i should probably shouldn't use that word in a spiritual sense as that opens up a different can of worms which isn't exactly what i mean um but it's it's certainly marvelous think back again to sam's sailing 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 away right in the road goes ever on and on poem there the Whither then I cannot say, right? The, 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 the reference to the unknown, to the almost unknowable, is here talking about adventure, right? The unknown future, the unknown, uh, uh, the unknown destiny, right? That you will be swept off to. Who knows what will happen to you? Who knows where you will end up? Not only physically where you, where your person will end up, right? But who knows where you will be taken? What adventures will come to you when you get swept off? Uh, and uh, uh, and 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 are, are, are taken off your feet and uh, converge into this great road which leads somewhere. Um, but I think these two things are connected in Bilbo's mind, right? Uh, and this, of course, is what Matt went on to do in the rest of his post, which I didn't have a chance to uh, 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 to quote. And so he went back and he's thinking about the sort of sequel to this poem that Bilbo writes uh, in Rivendell, right, in retirement. Um, I think that there is an association with this uh, leaving, again, think about the, the Hobbit and the whole Took and Baggins thing, right? Think about leaving that that sort of the mundane world behind and going off into the world of adventure, right? Going off into this magical and mysterious world. In a sense, that world into into which he enters, which he is brought into, um, is like one small, especially, again, remember, from a Shire-centric standpoint, right? From, from the point of view of the hobbits, 
being taken off on mad adventures, right? Going off into the wild and coming back with magic rings and dragon gold and things like that. That is like a shadow of the West, right? A fairy of this mysterious journey to this mysterious place, right? Um, and I think that Bilbo himself seems to see that. Um, until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet and whither then, I cannot say what is the end of his journey. Now, ironically, unbeknownst to Bilbo or to Frodo or to any of them at any point, you know, in their compositions of the various versions of this poem, Bilbo is, in fact, where, you know, whither then? Where is his, the road going to sweep Bilbo off to in the end? to the west, right? He is going to sail the straight road and end up going up to not I don't know if he's going to hang out with Gilgalad, but maybe maybe he will, right? Uh but in any case, he's leaving the Shire behind. Um and entering again into this into this mysterious realm. So the, I, I I you know, I'm still I need to um uh, I, I need to, to kind of flesh this out a little bit more, I think, in order to be able to articulate it uh, uh, really well. But but there does seem to me to be a similarity there. Again, and, and, and I, I, I don't know that I would go quite so far as saying that the, the two poems are allusions to each other, but I do think that the similarity in expression here is not coincidental. Um, in the sense that, in both cases, I think the poet Bilbo, right, is seems to be thinking in the same kind of direction, right? Um, what he's articul- articulating when he says, none can say, or I cannot say, is this sense of, of, of wonder, this sense of mystery, right? That's, he is talking about passing into the beyond the realm of mundane Hobbit experience, right? Into something which I'm not even going to try to explain it. Because again, remember, in Gilgalad, in the case of the first poem, there is an answer, right? Ironically, he says none can say. In fact, many can say. None in the Shire can really say, right? But it's not about whether or not we know. It's not about us actually being ignorant. It's about we can't explain it, right? We can't show you. We can't really make you see that until perhaps the road sweeps you off in that direction yourself. Um, and as it is, in fact, going to do with um, uh, with. With Bilbo, so I think that this is a really, really fun uh, connection, and, I, and you know, Matt, thanks for the juxtaposition there. Uh, you know, putting those stanzas next to each other, I find certainly very, uh, um, very fruitful. Um, yeah. Now, interesting. Uh, Mad violinist likes it likes it even better the juxtaposition uh, when thinking about the juxtaposition with Frodo's uh, version of the poem. Um, I will admit. So when Matt made his post, he actually did do that. Mad violinist. I totally changed it. I changed weary to eager, uh, just because I was thinking about Bilbo, right? And I wanted to I wanted to think about Bilbo as translator of the Gilgalad poem, and therefore Bilbo in the kind of pedagogical role, right? Bilbo as speaking through. His his poem in this kind of teacherly way to other hobbits, right? And then Bilbo expressing his own experience with his own adventures in the road, right? In his in the eager version of the poem, which was Bilbo's version uh, in chapter one. Uh, so I actually made that change. Matt originally had the weary feet, Frodo's version uh, of the poem, and I do think that it it it, it it's it's kind of cool thinking about both of them, right? Um, because both of them are totally appropriate, not just 
you know, and obviously not just in respect to Bilbo and Frodo themselves, but to the whole Gilgalad situation, right? Um, both eagerness and weariness, uh, and the whole, the different cast that those two words give to the entire poem, um, the, 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 the road poem, um, both of them, I think, can connect in some pretty interesting way with the concept of Gilgalad's departure and his destiny. Um, both of them, I think, are, are, are sort of relevant and fit. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Anyway, oops, oh, I'm messing things up again. So anyway, thanks, Matt, for that. That was really fun. Um, and um, yeah, <laughs> I see uh, uh, Lila Tomic, which is a cool name, uh, is reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time and following along with the group. That's, yeah, uh, don't let us hold you back, man. Like, if you're reading me for the first time, go, go, leave us in the dust and then come back. We'll still be here, right? Come back and read it again with us. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, yeah, don't read it at our pace or else you're never going to be able to keep track of anything. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is awesome. <laughs> Gilgear says we'll probably still be right here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, can we get to the end of chapter 11 before you finish the return of the king? I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Um, cool. Anyway, awesome. Um, so let's move on. Let's go back to the text. All right. We are on Weathertop, right? So let's go back to Weathertop. Um, we've just gotten to the top of Weathertop, and we've seen them there sort of exposed and looking around, but now we get the view, right? Strider wants his view, and we finally get Strider's view. On the top they found, as Strider had said, a wide ring of ancient stonework, now crumbling or covered with age-long grass. But in the center, a cairn of broken stones had been piled. They were blackened as if with fire. About them the turf was burned to the roots, and all had within the ring... Sorry, and all within the ring... I'll come in again. About them the turf was burned to the roots, and all within the ring the grass was scorched and shriveled, as if flames had swept the hilltop, but there was no sign of any living thing. Standing upon the rim of the ruined circle, they saw all round them a wide prospect, for the most part of lands empty and featureless, except for patches of woodland away to the south, beyond which they caught here and there the glint of distant water. Beneath them, on this southern side, there ran like a ribbon the old road, coming out of the west and winding up and down, until it faded behind a ridge of dark land to the east. Nothing was moving on it. Following its line eastward, with their eyes, they saw the mountains. The nearer foothills were brown and somber. Behind them stood taller shapes of gray, and behind those again were high white peaks gl glimmering among the clouds. Hey, we're glimmering, but it isn't gloomy. Um, cool. All right. Um, what strikes you? What strikes you about this, um, uh, this description? Right, what we're what we're seeing. Madaviolinus says, "Featureless is a Hobbit perspective on land that, if one knew it better, would certainly reveal far more of interest. Surely Strider seem, uh, sees more than this." Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I I agree. It is interesting, right? That the the Lone Lands are really uh, empty, especially from the Hobbit's point of view. Right, um, they're seeing a wide prospect. Right. But the lands are kind of empty 
and featureless. They can see a woodland, right? Um, they can see the road. Uh, they can see the mountains, right? And uh, Tony is um, noticing in particular the capitalization of mountains, right? Um, yeah. Now, these are the mountains, like the Misty Mountains, which presumably is why they're capitalized and not just... They saw the mountains. You know, there, there were a bunch of mountains over there. Um, but uh, but it, it, it does seem to me to have a kind of effect, right? They saw the mountains. Um, one of the things that you can kind of hear there, right? They've this, this of course, is a, also a sort of a flashback to Bilbo's own experience, right? Remember Bilbo's first view of the mountains, and he was extremely impressed, right? When he first sees the mountains at the beginning of chapter three of The Hobbit. Um, and of course, he is wondering if, if that's the if that's Erebor, right? If, they, if that's the lonely mountain that he's seeing um, uh, when he sees his first mountain in the distance. But in other words, these are they've heard stories, right? Bilbo's stories, of course, but they've heard uh, many other legends about the mountains, about the Misty Mountains, and they're seeing them now for the first time. Um, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, Bricktails, I agree. The high peaks glimmering among the clouds is very, is very mythic, is very... Yeah, like like Olympus, or yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, Tony, exa- that's ex- just as you were typing that. That's exactly what I'm thinking. That uh, these are mountains that they've heard about and never seen. That they do have special significance. I do think so. Uh, certainly, I mean, remember, Bilbo didn't talk about them quite that way, right? I mean, he had heard of mountains. And that was for Bilbo the important thing, right? Seeing mountains, um, any mountains, because he's never seen mountains before, but he's heard stories about mountains. Um, these are, they saw the mountains because they have heard stories. I get, remember, these are, these are hobbits that have grown up uh, in Bilbo's company, right? So the story of Bilbo's adventures in the Misty Mountains. You know, this has been their 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 bread and butter from their earliest days, right? So, uh, to them, it's the mountains, and probably they've heard other stories too. Bilbo has probably heard and told other stories about the mountains. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, um, yes, exactly. Mad violinist is recalling that we will learn. Later, um, that Mary has always loved stories about mountains. Um, uh, the the idea of mountains marching through stories. Um, yes. Now, see, Mad Violinist, that love of mountains that that's very Bilbo like, right? That same kind of sense of, um, uh, hey, those are those are what mountains really look like, right? Um, whereas this, I think, is more sort of specific. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, what else do we? What else do we see? What else do we notice about this? Um, nothing is moving on the road. Okay. So, one of the things when I look out, right? You know, I, I think of Strider looking out here. Um, What was he looking for, right? Why did Strider want this view? Um, 
what is the practical reason, I mean, for Strider to want this view? And I don't... It's hard for me to imagine that what Strider is looking for is evidence of the like that ocular evidence of the black riders right that he's actually hoping to see physically see the black riders like on what on the road right hopefully with their backs to him headed you know on past or something right I, um that seems to me unlikely right i mean of course it that is going to happen they are going to see the black riders on the road but when they do, Strider makes it pretty clear that them seeing the Black Riders on the road is something close to a disaster, right? Um, so th- I don't think that's what he was looking for. In fact, he gets so distracted that he forgets about that, right? You know, I mean, he's going to say that he was too careless here. Um, yeah, I think... Evil Dr. Cannon, I do think that what we're looking at, what he's looking at here is not the view from Weathertop, first and foremost. Because, again, I think there's very little in their situation that could be very much helped by the view from the top of Weathertop. It's not like he's scouting armies, right? Um, You know, it would be one thing to say if, like, think about when he's wanting to look at the view from Amon Hen. That's a different situation, right? As it's not just a mundane high place from which, you know, vantage point from which you can see the land around you. There's more to Amonhen than that, and we'll get there. But um, but more importantly, in that situation, you could still say he wanted, you know, he could have wanted to see things like, are there orcs moving in this area? You know, I, you could get a better sense of how should I steer our course from here, right? Um, if I could see, like, all right, so that area over there is swarming with orcs. We don't want to go that way. We need. To, I can see from here now that we want to go this way. You know, by this route or whatever like that, right? That I do not think is entering into his calculations. It is, of course, conceivable that the Nazgul have recruited a large troop of followers or something. I don't know if they bought off all the ruffians in Breland or something. Um, you know, had um, had Bill Fernie, you know, bring in his posse or whatever. I, but I, I can't imagine. Not only does that not happen, but I don't think that that could be what Strider's concerned about. And again, the ringwraiths themselves, he is very unlikely to see them. And if he can see them, it's, a, it's bad news. So I, I, I don't think that's it. You know, he's not going to be looking around and, you know, he won't be able to steer his course based on what he's going to see about the land around him. Um, however, I think he does want to see what's on top of Weathertop. I think he does want to see, he wants to figure out what happened when he saw the flashes of light. He knows pretty well that uh, the when he saw the lights, what looked like lightning springing up from the hilltop. Um, that that was on Weathertop, right? He knows the area well enough to know that that was a Weathertop phenomenon, right? So he wants to see. I think he wants to figure out what happened, as it's almost certain that there was some kind of fight here, right? And there was some kind of fight in which fire was being hurled around. It's got to be a fight with the, the Ring Raids versus somebody, right? And Gandalf is certainly the most likely person to have been involved in that. You know, we've sort of talked this through before. So I think that that um, 
uh, is what he's primarily looking for. Um, what can I learn? Was Gandalf really here? Did he fight the Ringwraiths? Did he win or lose? Right? What can I learn about the status of things um, from seeing what's there in Weathertop? And truly, what is going to distract Aragorn? Right? Is not the view from Weathertop out across the country. It's the view of Weathertop. Right? Uh, what's inside the Stone Circle is what is going to really hold his attention. Um, so, yeah. Now, Evil Doctor Cannon, he does say back in Bree that he's going to make for Weathertop. And yeah, that's before he sees the light. But remember, he's debating um, uh, as they're approaching whether or not it's actually a good idea uh, uh, to go. And, you know, I think that one of the... The reason that he cited in Bree why he wanted to go to Weathertop is that he was hoping maybe to rendezvous with Gandalf there. Because if Gandalf came to... He knows Gandalf's not been to Bree, right? Because he's heard no word. But if Gandalf made it to Bree after them, which indeed he's gonna, right? That he, Gandalf, would probably figure that Strider would head for Weathertop, which indeed Gandalf is gonna figure that, right? And Gandalf would have presumably waited for Strider at Weathertop to try to catch up with him, if not for the fact that the Ringwraiths were attacking him, and so he deliberately, Gandalf deliberately drew them off, right? We're going to learn that that Strider's reasoning is, in fact, very plausible. They might have rendezvoused with Gandalf there, had it not been for the intervention uh, of the Nazgul. So when he's questioning, do I go to Weathertop or do I not go to Weathertop, it's post-seeing the lightning, right? Gandalf was there... If Gandalf was in combat with the Ringwraiths on Weathertop three nights ago, he's not still going to be there, right? Um, so that so that re- that motivation to go to Weathertop is out, right? But I think he does want to find out what happened, right? And that's what we'll see him doing. Let's keep going. Well, here we are, said Mary, and very cheerless and uninviting it looks. There's no water and no shelter and no sign of Gandalf, but I don't blame him for not for not waiting if he ever came here. Uh, notice, by the way, um, there's no water and no shelter, says Mary. Here's Mary seeming to point out if I'm understanding improperly, uh, what Mary seems to be implying to Strider is well. My assessment is that this would make a lousy camping spot, Aragorn. Right? Just uh, nah, we shouldn't camp here. Right? There's no water. There's no shelter. This is a terrible place to stay. Right? Um, very cheerless and uninviting. Thanks for the view. Nice view, except it's not actually that nice of a view. I mean, we can see a long ways, but we can see a whole lot of nothing. Right? There's nothing really to see. So, great view, but, you know, not the, be- n- not the best and kind of useless. Right? We can't camp here either. Um <laughs> Bricktails, I agree. The idea of uh, finding much water or shelter at the very crown of a tall hill like this doesn't seem very likely. But I, um, I suggest, I, I would suggest that this is Mary. Um, <laughs> yeah, Bruce is like water runs in valleys, <laughs> Mary. Yeah, exactly. Um, but again, I, 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 I read this as Mary kind of thinking. Like, I, Mary has no idea why they've come up, right? You know, he can only think of a of a few reasons. Like one, because it's a lovely view, 
right? Except, you know, Mary's like, yeah, I give it a B plus, right? Um, or maybe we came to scout out a camping site, right? I think that shelter Dell underneath the hill is actually a better campsite, right? Let's stick with that one, Strider. I think he's grasping at straws. I don't think he knows, right? And no sign of Gandalf, he says blithely, right? Nope. I don't see. What is he looking for? <laughs> what to Mary would be a sign of Gandalf? I mean, you'll notice that we got the whole, like, all the grass is shriveled. It looks like fire has swept the hilltop. And he's like, nope, no sign of Gandalf. No idea, right? Um, I... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anakin, Mary has made an extensive search, right? And found no sign of Gandalf. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't blame him for not waiting if he ever came here. I wonder, said Strider, looking around thoughtfully. And notice, when he's looking around, he's not looking out, right? He's looking down. Even if he was a day or two behind us at Bree, he could have arrived here first. He can ride very swiftly when need presses. Suddenly he stooped and looked at the stone on the top of the cairn. It was flatter than the others, and whiter, as if it had escaped the fire. He picked it up and examined it, turning it in his fingers. This has been handled recently, he said. What do you think of these marks? On the flat underside, Frodo saw some scratches. There seemed to be a stroke, a dot, and three more strokes, he said. The stroke on the left might be a G-rune, with thin branches, said Strider. It might be a sign left by Gandalf, though one cannot be sure. The scratches are fine, and they certainly look fresh. But the marks might mean something quite different, and have nothing to do with us. Rangers use runes, and they come here sometimes. Um, okay. So, Strider shows us a little bit of his thinking here, right? Or at least he's sort of explaining to Mary. Um, no sign of Gandalf, but I don't blame him for not waiting, says Mary, if he ever came here. Um, then Strider seems to start thinking aloud, right? Or again, at least sort of letting them know what he's thinking, right? Even if he was a day or two behind us at Bree, he could have arrived here first, so... You know, let's not... First of all, don't make the mistake of thinking that we're staying ahead of Gandalf. Um, he might easily have passed us. Um, and then he finds the stone that was handled recently. This is what he immediately keys on. Now, um, yeah, Brunier, I agree. The signs are, the signs are in fact, right there. Um, Gandalf has indeed left a very clear sign, right? Um... Ambrosius Aurelianus has always felt that this way of leaving a message had an unnecessarily high risk of not getting found. Um, was this the best way for Gandalf to leave a secret sign? Um, well, yeah, in some ways. So think about Gandalf's situation here, right? First of all, Gandalf is pressed for time. Right? Boomful, you joke about this, but that's actually a really important point. Uh, Boomful says, uh, it's a good sign that there's, that there's no dead wizard here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got to think. Strider's number one question, his number one question has to be, I think it's not, was Gandalf here? I think his number one question has to be, did Gandalf win? Right? I mean, he, how can he know that? Um, and it's not obvious that that um it's not obvious that Gandalf 
need have won that he was brought to battle on Weathertop. Uh, again, that that it was him. It's not. It's not like that's absolutely obvious, but I. It's. It seems clear that Strider is thinking that, and that seems like the most sensible interpretation of things. Um, coming in, you've got to be thinking like Strider has to be thinking that it's Gandalf until proven otherwise, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, exactly. Anakin, I agree that Strider knew it was Gandalf when he saw the flashes, but didn't want to say for whatever reason. Yeah, Anakin, and this leads me to suspect what perhaps that reason could have been, right? Um, maybe he did not want to share with the hobbits his anxiety. The question is not... Um, I mean, notice Mary. I don't blame him for not waiting. Gandalf isn't here, right? Well, he must have gone off, right? Obviously, Mary has not even even briefly considered the possibility that, like, the mutilated corpse of Gandalf is lying in a shallow grave somewhere nearby, right? I mean, that's just not on his radar screen. But I think it's on Strider's radar screen. I think that this, you know, the more I'm looking at these scenes, the more I think that that's a big part of his motivation here, right? And this brings me back, Ambrosius Aurelianus, to your question, and to Gandalf's mechanism uh, for leaving his sign. Um, One of the things that is going to be the result of leaving this particular kind of sign, um, on the one hand, he can be reasonably sure um, on the one hand, uh, Gandalf can be reasonably sure that Strider is going to notice the rock. I, th- I mean, he does right away. I mean, like, you know, Mary's looking around and saying, well, no sign of Gandalf. And Strider looks around and he's like, look at this rock, right? So uh, I- I'm not sure that I agree that this is a super low risk of not being found by Aragorn. There is some risk of it's not being properly understood exactly, Right. But um, I think the most important thing here, though, is that uh, what Gandalf is showing by the nature of the sign, right? I think, what's the take-home message here? The take-home message here is Gandalf survived the fight. Gandalf, after the fire is done, right? The fire has swept across the hillside. After that, Gandalf took a rock carved a rune on it and put it on top, on top of the charred rocks, right? Um, that could only have been done by a living Gandalf after the fire fight was over. Had Gandalf just left us, you know, had he, had he left a sign which had char on it, right? Then, you know, you don't know but what he was killed after he left the sign, right? This is clearly a sign that was left after the fight has happened. Um, so... Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's, um, it's pretty obvious that, uh, Gandalf, I think he wanted to indicate, um, perhaps that he, cause again, what's the, uh, um, well, we'll come back to his interpretation in a second. Um, interesting. Ooh, Bricktails. I like that a lot. Um, 
Bricktail says the, the white rock on top of the blackened rocks could symbolize that uh, the good guy coming out on top of the black riders. Uh, that is really interesting, actually, right? Um, I'm going to communicate by allegorical construction, right? Um, is, uh, is neat. Now, the cairn is presumably not built by Gandalf, right? Because those rocks in the can are char, or in the cairn are charred. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the idea of like, yes, like the Gandalf rock, the uncharred Gandalf rock is on top of all the other charred things. It does kind of convey the message, right? Not only does it logically convey the message, if I was here to put the rock on top of the char, I survived the fight. Um, but, uh, but I think that, uh, I, I, I do agree the sort of visual, um, statement that it makes is, is fitting. Whether Gandalf is actually trying to communicate by allegory or not, I don't know, but uh, I do think that that's a pretty... Uh, uh, I agree that that's a sort of a powerful um, uh, vision. Um, but, um, yeah. No, so, Mad Violinist, I think we do have evidence that it happened after. Again, because it's, it's, it's escaped the charring, and it's in the most exposed position, right? You know, wherever that rock, I don't know exactly where he got that rock that was not charred, um, but it stands out because uh, it's, it's flatter than the others and whiter as if it had, had escaped the fire, right? How could it have escaped the fire? Again, I think it's the answer to how it escaped the fire is it wasn't there when the fire came and it was placed afterwards. Um, I mean, I don't think that that's absolutely proven, but I think that that's, I feel fairly confident in that. Um, Brunier says, shouldn't it be a gray rock now? Uh, as he's not Gandalf the white yet. Nah, but it's, you know, it just, it's, 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 it's like binary, right? You know, he's not, it, it it's not like, uh, like his personal rock, right? It's, 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 uh, more, uh, um, more foreshadowing. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, I was just going back to... Um, um, oh, I see. Okay. Sorry, I just wanted to uh, see an exchange. Um, yeah. No, Mad Violinist, absolutely, absolutely, that is absolutely my reading. That Gandalf was attacked... The riders withdrew, and he had time to make a message before departing himself. Yes. Now, this message would not have taken him long to make, right? He could have made this message in minutes, right? Um, but that he was that that he would think, "I want to leave a message for Strider," right? Um, and uh, and one that he will hopefully understand. He would want Strider to know that he was here and that he survived. Right, both of those messages are conveyed by this, and like, okay, I'm gonna look around. I'm finding a rock outside the circle, right? That is gonna stand out. I'm gonna bring it in. I'm gonna quick carve because I mean, it's it's uh, it's a very faint carving, right? Uh, and very simple. I don't think he's chipping away at this with a with a hammer and chisel, right? Um, it's just scratches that have been made in the surface of the rock, which could have been done in in. That, that that whole thing could have been done in five minutes. I think he could have easily had time for that. Um, uh, yeah, I agree, Tony. All, all he would need is the tip of a knife uh, to make those scratches on the rock. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, the... 
The stroke might be a G-rune with thin branches. It might be a sign left by Gandalf, though one cannot be sure. The scratches are fine, and they certainly look fresh. But the marks might mean something different. Um, Strider's doubting of himself, right? Whether or not he's reading uh, the, um, uh, the sign correctly, right? Uh, is interesting. And I wonder, is it... Um, is Strider seriously doubting himself? Is he kind of thinking this out to sort of encourage the, um, you know, the hobbits to be thinking through this at the same time? I do agree, Amathorn, that Strider does like to hedge his conclusions. He will act confidently, um, but he will rarely sort of speak confidently, right, of his own interpretations and own abilities. Um, Mike, I do think there's an, there could be an element here of him putting on a show for the hobbits, Um it's sort of a teaching moment. He does this. Strider does help to 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 teach them, um, and teaching them. I remember he's talking to a hobbit who just said, "Well, no sign of Gandalf. Guess we should go." <laughs> I'm not even going to notice the entire charred top of the hill. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let's look at the next passage here. What could they mean, even if Gandalf made them? Asked Mary. So notice, Mary is still not even convinced that he's seen a sign of Gandalf, right? And, you know, maybe this is because Mary is a little embarrassed by the fact that he just said, no sign of Gandalf, and then and Strider's literally found a sign carved by Gandalf, right? It's like, well, no sign except this one, right? Um so maybe, uh, maybe his, uh, you know, Mary's, uh, if clause there is, uh, is kind of trying to save face there, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but, but Mary is uncertain as to how to interpret them, right? I should say, answered Strider, that they stood for G3 and were a sign that Gandalf was here on October the 3rd. That is three days ago now. It would also show that he was in a hurry and danger was at hand so that he had no time or did not dare to write anything longer or plainer. If that is so, we must be wary. I wish we could feel sure that he made the marks, whatever they may mean, said Frodo. It would be a great comfort to know that he was on the way, in front of us or behind us. Perhaps, said Strider. For myself, I believe that he was here and was in danger. There have been scorching flames here, and now the light that we saw three nights ago in the eastern sky comes back to my mind. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call baloney on that statement. Actually, uh, I don't think it had just came back to his mind. Now, I think he's been thinking about the light that he saw in the sky three days ago. In fact, I think that's been on his mind for the last three days. Um, but again, I think that here we can see him walking the hobbits through this, right? Do you remember the lights we saw in the sky? Okay, that comes back to my mind now, right? Um, yeah, anyway, uh, okay, let's see. Um, where was I? All right, I guess that he was attacked on this hilltop, but with what result I cannot tell. He is here no longer, and we must now look after ourselves and make our own way to Rivendell as best we can. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, G3, a sign that Gandalf was here on October the 3rd. Um, this is what the exchange uh, that you guys had earlier. 
uh, about again about Strider sort of being dubious in his interpretation. Um, and uh, uh, Carita was pointing out that she thinks that Gandalf trusts Strider more than Strider t- trusts Strider. Right? Strider might have some doubts about his own uh, interpretation. But Gandalf is confident that he is, A, going to find this sign, and B, understand what it means. And of course, in fact, he does, right? We will learn that Strider is exactly correct about this, right? This is exa- Everything he has said is exactly right. Gandalf was found here. He was attacked. Uh, he left the sign. Uh, it means that he was here on October the 3rd, which is exactly when he was there. Um, and, you know, he left it with them uh, because, you know, he left the sign for them because they wanted him to know. They, he wanted them to know uh, that he was nearby. Um, and notice that's exactly what Frodo says. It would be a great comfort to know that he was on the way in front of us or behind us. That is doubtless one of the reasons why Gandalf says, hey, let me mark a rock before I leave. Right. Um, so that they will know that it was definitely me. Um yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, good. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh Anakin points out that um one of the other uh, sort of roles of Strider. I I think <clears throat> Anakin referring to uh, Strider kind of talking through these things, right? That it helps them to trust him, right? I, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. You know, I'm not just talking here, right? Let me help you to see what I'm seeing and to come to the same conclusions that I've come to. Um, yeah, he's showing his work. Exactly, JJ. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um the one thing, the one statement of Strider's that puzzles me is with what result I cannot tell. Well, I mean, yes, that's true. He doesn't, like, he can't recreate, you know, he's not up there on Weathertop like Prince Humperdinck, you know, uh, working out exactly the twos and fro's of the sword fight, you know, on the cliffside. Um, no, he doesn't know the entire narrative blow by blow of the entire battle. Um, but I think he does know that Gandalf lived, right? Uh, that Gandalf won, or at least that Gandalf escaped. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, Tarlonia. I'm not sure you can track a wizard on a cloudy day. Exactly. Interesting. So, Mad Violinist suggests that he doesn't think Strider is as confident that the message happened after the battle as I am. Maybe. Maybe. He is here no longer is his conclusion. And we must now look after ourselves and make our own way to Rivendell as best we can. So, Aragorn pushes... Here I'm thinking about Aragorn primarily in this kind of pedagogical role. right? I'm thinking about what he is saying to the hobbits here. Um, And I want to separate what he's saying to the hobbits from what we might conclude he's thinking. 
right? Because those are not necessarily the same things. Um, and uh, um, notice the two take-homes, right? The two take-home messages from Strider to the Hobbits from this whole thing is, one, Gandalf was here, right? So, Frodo, would it be a great comfort to you to know that he was on the way in front of you or behind you? Then be comforted, right? Gandalf is around. That's message number one. Message number two, he is here no longer, and now we must look after ourselves, right? Don't think about waiting for Gandalf. Don't hope we're going to catch up with Gandalf. That's been on both Strider and Frodo's mind since they were in Bree, right? The hope of coming to Weathertop at all initially back in Bree was to rendezvous with Gandalf, right? So one of the things that Strider is saying is, hey, awesome, look, we have what I firmly believe to be evidence, right, which I believe to be evidence that Gandalf is in, was in fact here just three days ago, right? So Gandalf is in fact in the area. Um, great. But give up hope of of meeting up with him, right? Don't rely on that. Don't expect Gandalf to come and rescue you. Don't think that we can just try to plan on finding him between here and Rivendell. It's not going to happen, right? Um, so, oops, sorry. Lost my, my I'm going to quit out of the game entirely if I'm not careful. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that... Um, those again, those seem to be the two things that he's primarily um, emphasizing to the two of them. So why does he emphasize the doubtfulness of the outcome? Um, yeah, ex- that's a good way of saying it. Mad violinist, he is here no longer. Is a very pragmatic statement, leading the hobbits not to expect deliverance by Gandalf. Um, with what outcome, I cannot say. Does he want to... At the very least, I think, we can say he is not going out of his way to try to reassure them about Gandalf's fate, right? I mean, he has said, I think Gandalf was here, but I think he was in danger. I think the I think the ringwraiths attacked him. I mean, he doesn't name the ringwraiths here, but I guess he was attacked, and it's pretty clear by whom, right? Um, so Gandalf, Gandalf's around. That's the comforting news. But he's in trouble, right? He's on. He's been under attack. Uh, we don't know what's going to. So not only do we have no realistic hopes of rendezvousing with Gandalf, we don't know what's going to happen to Gandalf. Right, um, Strider doesn't know what's going to happen to him. Uh, even if Strider can conclude from the rock on the cairn that Gandalf is uh, survived this encounter, is he going to survive the next one? Right, that's not uh, not really sure. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, and no, Lincoln, he doesn't say. The Ringwraiths or Nazgul. He doesn't even name the Black Riders, right? Um, but remember, he's been the one discouraging folks from naming them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, Aragorn. Uh, Tony says that Aragorn is is planning based on the worst case scenario. That seems, yeah, uh, that seems kind of what he's encouraging the hobbits to do here, right? Um, he doesn't want to lower their spirits. Um, I, was it was it you, Bricktails? Somebody was bringing this up. Uh, I, I'm forgetting who started this discussion on the discussion board. Um, but I but I really liked it. I, I I really agree. One of the primary reasons why Strider keeps discouraging them from thinking about certain things or talking about certain things. I think there's more to it as well, but I do think that one of the reasons is he doesn't want them to get like just all scared and depressed and freaked out because that strengthens the ring wraiths, right? Um, How you, their, their strength is in fear. I absolutely agree with that. Um, Yeah, that was you. I thought that was you. So yeah, I, I think that was a really great observation, and I think that we can see that here. Why doesn't he name them here, right? Why doesn't he even name name them as Black Riders, right? Because he doesn't want to convey that image directly, right? Um, he doesn't want to increase their fear of this enemy, so he just he he notice he just uses the passive voice, right? He was attacked. With what result, I cannot tell. Uh, he's raising the prospect that Gandalf was defeated or will be defeated, right? But he's not talking about it, right? He's not raising the image. He's not saying the Black Riders possibly overwhelmed him here, which has the impact of, like, now, like, the Black Riders loom large in your mind and you imagine them and, like, them overcoming Gandalf and, oh, that's horrible, and now I'm, you know, four times as afraid as I was before, right? That's, he's not going to do that. Right. And yet he's also not going to sugarcoat the possibility. Right. Gandalf's in trouble. The Black Riders are trouble even for Gandalf. And we have to confront the fact that not only is Gandalf unlikely to be able to help us, uh, Gandalf might not even be able, even if Gandalf could find us, that might not save us. Right. So let's just, you know, kind of acknowledge that the way I, I, I see him in other words kind of balancing um, a, uh, a a sort of the harsh truth with the very important highly practical keeping their morale up here right um, uh, Gandalf did void bravely. <laughs> Tales. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, those of you who are not uh, listening to our Sir Thomas Mallory class in the Mythgard Academy, uh, voiding uh, is a, a, a fun verb that they, that they use for retreating on the battlefield, for leaving the battlefield. We, we've got a void. Um, yeah, yeah. Belongsmon thinks that Aragorn perhaps needs to lift up his own spirits. Uh, so, uh, you know, which perhaps he's going to do uh, with poetry later on. That might indeed well be. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, and Amethorn, I agree, just the Witch King alone is a challenge for Gandalf. Certainly will be later on, even Gandalf 2.0, but um, of course the Witch King here is not the Witch King at the gates of Minas Tirith. Um, he's, both of them, Gandalf and the Witch King, will have been seriously upgraded before they meet again. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay. 
Let's keep going. How far is Rivendell? asked Mary, gazing round wearily. The world looked wild and wide from Weathertop. Now, hey, look, somebody up on this high vantage point is actually looking out, right? I don't know if the road has ever been measured in miles beyond the Forsaken Inn, a day's journey east of Bree, answered Strider. Some say it is so far, and some say otherwise. It is a strange road, and folk are glad to reach their journey's end, whether the time is long or short. But I know how long it would take me on my own feet, with fair weather and no ill fortune. Twelve days from here to the ford of Bruinen, where the road crosses the loud water that runs out of Rivendell. We have at least a fortnight's journey before us, for I do not think we shall be able to use the road. A fortnight, said Frodo. A lot may happen in that time. It may, said Strider. Okay. Um, Mary is thinking sort of practically here, right? Notice Mary's taken the message, right? His message of comfort, but, you know, gird yourselves, right? Because we're on our own. Don't look for Gandalf to come riding in to our rescue, right? Um, and that's exactly what Mary does, right? How far is Rivendell, right? Let's Let's think in practical terms about this road ahead of us. What exactly are we bracing for? And here's Strider explaining, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, it would take me 12 days to walk from here to the Fort of Bruinen. Um, we have at least a fortnight's journey before us, for I do not think we shall be able to use the road. I think he's being a little gentle here. Yeah, see, Lincoln, exactly. Um, well, I'm not sure I agree with your conclusion there, but that contrast is exactly what, I, what I'm what i seeing, too. Uh, Lincoln says that uh, Strider, the greatest woodsman alive, takes 12 days to Rivendell by road. With these three bumpkin hobbits in tow, it might only be two extra days, right? Um, uh for all their penchant for complaining, the hobbits are hardier than Strider gave them credit for. Possibly, I think he's underestimating, right? Um, I, I think he's wanting to... What he tells them is true. He doesn't lie to them. But I don't think he quite... Notice, at least, right? At least a fortnight's journey. It's going to end up being more than that. First of all... I think it would probably be a more than a two-day difference for himself alone between using the road and not using the road, right? If he can't use the road, it's going to be it's going to add more than two days to the journey, um, even if he were on, uh, e- e- even if he were by himself. With the hobbits not taking the road, it's going to take substantially more than twelve days to get to the fort of Bruinen. Um, so you know he's not wanting to he's not wanting to be a downer here right he's not trying to discourage them but he is trying to fortify them again the continuing the same gird your loins and get ready message that he was conveying in the previous speech right um we have at least a fortnight's journey before us that is a true statement right um yeah yeah um 
Valori <laughs> says all contractors exaggerate to clients. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Not sugarcoating, but not depressing. Exactly. I do think that that's um, uh, that that's the the sort of uh, balance that he's uh, that he's meeting here. Notice also that he is, you know, telling them a little bit about what they can look for, right? And what, what they can look forward to. Um, <laughs> yeah. The mad violinist says Strider knows Scotty's principles of work estimation. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly it. Um, now Irindus points out that Strider's est- estimate looks about right, uh, from appendix B, in which case, if that's true, uh, then I wonder Okay. Yeah. So here's um, here's my thought then. Then I think he's done another piece of sleight of hand. Mary says, how far is Rivendell? And he answers that question in two different ways. His first answer is, how many miles by road is it? Right? Um... I don't know if the road has ever been measured. Some say it's so far and some say otherwise. It's a strange road, right? So, like he's still talking about the literally the road, right? Like the, 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 the path to Rivendell. Um, but I know how long it would take me on my own feet 12 days from here to the ford of Bruinen, where the road crosses the loud water. Um, if it takes him 12 days and it's going to take them 14 days, I think it's the difference is not between him taking the road and him not taking the road, right? I think he's thinking, how long would it take me if I don't use the road? It would take me 12 days, and it would take me 14 days with uh, the four of you and your pony, right? Um, so, but again, notice I think that there's a, well, I won't say sleight of hand, that's not quite fair, um, uh, but he starts talking about the actual road, um, and it and then slips to saying not slips again that suggests he's being dishonest and i don't i don't think so um but um uh yeah um so i think that my initial assumption that he was giving his own measure by the road is uh is That I think is is the the part that is inaccurate. I think that he was estimating across country the whole way, um, and he does. Matt, you're right that he pushes the hobbits pretty hard, and uh, and Trifle is right to say that Gorfindel pushes them pretty hard too. Um, but again, I think this is all explaining how they managed to make it in only two extra days, um, because Strider on his own would still be faster, um, and um, but not Strider going straight along the road versus versus them being in the woods. I cannot imagine that that's a difference of only two days. Um, so, uh, yeah. So the 12 days then is a kind of reassurance, right? If we shift it, then we have him not giving a Scotty estimation, but in fact, giving them a plausible worst case scenario, Right. I know this road both by the road and not by the road, 
right? I have done the Weathertop to Rivendell not by the road trek before, right? And I know that that road would take me 12 days. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Mad Violinist is pointing out my wild, uh, uh, my wild, um, inconsistencies in pronunciation of Elvish names. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Totally. Any, again, I don't make any apologies for this, apart from the fact that I'm still pronouncing many, many names like I did when I was a kid and first read them, you know, so <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uh, and some habits. Diet. There are, there are, I will say in my own defense that many of my uh, childhood pronunciations, I ha- the, mo- the most egregious of my childhood mispronunciations, uh, I have corrected. Uh, like, I totally pronounced the initial C's as soft C's when I was a kid. I absolutely did. Um, but, uh, so, I, you know, I've corrected some things. But, you know, some things die hard. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. What time is it? Eh, one more. One more. They stood for a while silent on the hilltop near its southward edge. In that lonely place, Frodo for the first time fully realized his homelessness and danger. He wished bitterly that his fortune had left him in the quiet and beloved Shire. He stared down at the hateful road, heading, leading back westwards to his home. Suddenly, he was aware that two black specks were moving slowly along it, going westward. And looking again, he saw that three others were creeping eastward to meet them. He gave a cry and clutched Strider's arm. Look, he said, pointing downwards. At once, Strider flung himself on the ground behind the ruined circle, pulling Frodo down beside him. Merry threw himself alongside. "'What is it?' he whispered. "'I do not know, but I fear the worst,' answered Strider. Slowly they crawled up to the edge of the ring again and peered through a cleft between two jagged stones. The light was no longer bright, for the clear morning had faded, and clouds creeping out of the east had now overtaken the sun as it began to go down. They could all see the black specks, but neither Frodo nor Merry could make out their shapes for certain. Yet something told them that there, far below, were black riders assembling on the road beyond the foot of the hill. Yes, said Strider, whose keener sight left him in no doubt. The enemy is here. Hastily they crept away and slipped down the north side of the hill to find their companions. Okay. Um, Fourth Dauntless, yeah, I think that first paragraph is really important. Uh, Fourth Dauntless is thinking about uh, sort of the Baggins side of Frodo, wishing for a quiet fire at home in the Shire. Uh, yeah, this, I think, is a this is a very Bilbo moment. In fact, it reminds me um, uh, it reminds me of very particularly of two moments uh, in The Hobbit. Um to a lesser extent, it reminds me of the moment when Bilbo is sitting on the doorstep, right? And he's looking back out towards the west, towards his home. He's sitting there on the mountain thinking about the hill, right? 
to a the to a greater extent the passage that this makes me think of is the moment when Bilbo is climbing up into the mountains into the misty mountains in chap- in the beginning of chapter 4 and he's looking back across the land stretching below him off into the west and imagining that you know th- they're far away in that direction where he knows the Shire lies and he's thinking about how the seasons are changing and they're going to be blackberrying and stuff right um so uh uh, anyway, that I think is is that moment is a really interesting one in The Hobbit, right? Because you have Bilbo now he's he's crossing a line, right? He's left the last homely house, he has entered the wild, and as he's climbing up into the misty mountains, which are very wild indeed, right? He's uh, he is now looking back across the fence, right? Back across the fence towards uh, his home, towards the whole, you know area of continent of which his home is only a part uh, with this with this kind of longing. Frodo's longing for home is similar, and his looking back is similar too. He's not in, up in the Misty Mountains, um, but of course here he is on an island under siege, right? Where Gandalf himself was cornered uh, and fought, and where Frodo himself is soon to be cornered, he is certainly, although not geographically in the wild yet, uh, is uh, is nevertheless in a uh, in that sense in an even wilder place um, than uh, than than Bilbo was, um, and he's looking back across and thinking about his quiet and beloved Shire. But of course, there's a big difference between Frodo's version of this and Bilbo's version of this. The similarities to me really emphasize the difference. And this is not exactly, this is why I don't think with, with Frodo, it's not exactly a Baggins-ish thing, right? With Bilbo, it's that, you know, the desire for adventure versus the desire to stay home and for everything to be quiet and normal. Um, with Frodo, that's not what's operative here, right? He's not just imagining his kettle on the hearth just beginning to sing. He's realizing his homelessness and danger, right? He is wishing bitterly, not just not just longing, right? But he's wishing bitterly that his fortune had left him in the quiet and beloved Shire. And just longing for the Shire, right? He is uh, feeling, well, I don't know, want to say betrayed, right? But that's a little strong. Um, but remember his own words, right? It's no there and back again journey. This is not just about him leaving home behind and then coming back to it eventually later on with a lot of danger in between, like Bilbo had, right? He's been exiled from the Shire, functionally exiled from the Shire. He can't ever go home, right? Uh, He's to go there and never come back again. And that's what he's thinking about, right? So looking back towards home emphasizes his homelessness and his danger, seeing it from afar and thinking about how quiet and beloved the Shire is to him, serves only to emphasize his exposure, his danger, and the way that he has been trapped by fortune, right? And exiled, ultimately. And it is in that thought that he sees the Black Riders down on the road, right? The Black Riders converging, and uh, therefore sort of... um, closing in um and it's on the one hand these two things are juxtaposed right that is frodo's kind of negative thoughts about 
you know, his, I won't say hopeless, because it's not exactly hopelessness, but bitterness. There is bitterness there, right? I mean, that's the word that uh, that the narrator uses to describe it. Um, the bitterness that Frodo feels as he's as his view of the, his distant home leads him to reflect on his own situation. Um, he's feeling bitter and kind of hope despairing in the bigger picture sense, right? Despairing about his life, about what's going to, what's going to come of him, right? Um, what the future has for him, even if he's, it's not about, is he going to survive today? But like, even if he does for what, right? To can be a, a refugee for the rest of his life, right? Um, I mean, those are, that's the direction that his thoughts are trending here as he's looking home. Oh, and by the way, the Black Riders are down there in the valley, right? Um, you know, is that uh, a coincidence? Is that not a coincidence? You know, is that, um, is that something that is, uh, um, is that something that is, is, is there in fact a causal link? Right. Um, Tony's wondering how much of this is the influence of the ring. Always a good question to be asking. I don't know. I'm, I'm tempted. Um, oh, interesting. O'Malley is, um, uh, wondering, could Frodo's negative thoughts have caught the attention of the Nazgul? Thinking, like the causing working the other way around, right? I hadn't thought of that at all. I would kind of doubt that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would kind of doubt that, but I would believe the other, or maybe it's just a coincidence, right? But that is to say that their presence nearby, that it's having an impact, right? That Frodo can, in some sense, even sort of subliminally feel it. Right, um, uh, that is, you know, feel the 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 presence. Of, so even before he notices, even before he sees them, and it's him who sees them first, right? And why is his attention drawn that way, right? Um, I, I think that he might be sort of feeling them. So um, Fourth Thoughtless is saying that a longing for home doesn't sound like Ring monologue. No, it really doesn't. Uh, even this kind of bitterness. I mean, it's. It's a negative thought. It's a despairing thought. But do we have any evidence of the ring causing despairing thoughts? It's interesting when we think about the hope, hope and despair sort of theme, right? A motif throughout the Lord of the Rings, as we've been already kind of thinking about it some. The ring doesn't seem to play that game. Think about the kinds of things that the ring has prompted, you know, when we have some pretty clear evidence of what the ring prompts Frodo to think and to do. It's never been despair, right? It's always been to, in a sense, even in a warped sense, towards hope, right? Like, you're in a barrow, right? A Barrow White has caught you, and you've been laid under the spells, the dreadful spells of the Barrow Whites. Here comes a disembodied hand, right, towards a sword hilt, about to kill your friends and presumably you afterwards, right? What are you going to do, Frodo? The ring suggestion is, don't worry. You can just get out of this, right? Put on the ring and, right, you can escape. Um, It doesn't lead him to despair. 
in a sense, it's the opposite of despair. It's a warped kind of hope. Um, exactly, Mad Violinist. The Nazgul are about despair, but the ring is about luring one to power. That's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, uh, yeah, people despairing have no need of power, says says JJ. Exactly right. So I don't think the ring. I, I, I don't think the ring plays this game. Um, the despair versus hope uh, uh, game. I mean, in fact, if anything, the stronger someone's hope is, right? You know, the stronger someone's hope in the in the simpler sense. You know, the um, the sort of amdir sense of hope. Uh, the then the the more likely it is that. Um, they're gonna fall to the ring, right? He's gonna like if you think things are gonna work out well, the ring can use that, right? That's that's good raw material for the ring. Um, so so yeah, I I, I don't um, exactly as Galandar says, the ring is offering an easy solution, not suggesting that there is no solution. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't think. Um, uh, I don't think that that this doesn't seem to fit the pattern. The, the this bitterness that he's feeling doesn't seem to fit the pattern of uh, uh, of the ring's temptation. Um, and I'll, JJ says it might also explain why the wise are more vulnerable to it. Um, yeah, yeah, in a sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Fourth Thoughtless wants to disagree about Boromir. Well, we'll see. We will have time to look at Boromir's state of mind and the nature of his temptation by the ring. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting. Irindus points out this is the third section break that ends with an exclamation or warning from Strider. And she says it's kind of a tense build-up, right? First, do not speak of such things. Then, do not speak that name so loudly. And then, the enemy is here. That is a really cool progression, right? Um, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, the enemy is here, he says. Um Several of you earlier on, and I kind of missed some of these comments earlier on, um, were pointing out that um, uh, the the clouds, right, uh, uh, create a really they they emphasize the effect here in a in a really cool way. The light was no longer bright, for the clear morning had faded, and clouds creeping out of the east had now overtaken the sun as it began to go down. I agree, that sounds super ominous, right? Clouds creeping out of the east, overtaking the sun. Um, it's not just that they cover the sun. Clouds often do that, right? But this idea of, like, the clouds first creeping, right? Like they're stealthy some you know they're stealthily coming out of the east and then pouncing on the sun from behind right uh you know when it least expected it it's it's uh it is very it is very eerie and tony points out that the east is capitalized here um yeah which 
at least invite, if it doesn't actually mean, it at least invites us to think about the East, the capital E East, in all of its senses, right? On the one hand, it does just mean that part of the country, right? That direction. But at the same time, often when we talk about the East, we're talking about that which is in the East, right? Um, uh, so it, it, it at least kind of opens the door there. Um Even the going down of the sun begins to sound... I mean, again, the sun goes down every day. Nothing more normal than the going down of the sun. But it, when once you have the clouds coming in from the east, right, and then overtaking the sun, and then the sun goes down, it makes it sound a little more final, right? The light has been overtaken, and then the light, you know, descends, the light dies. Um, yeah, yeah, it sounds super ominous, I agree. Um... Okay, cool. All right, let's um uh let's stop there. Uh it's getting late. Um Yeah. It's getting late, so we'll uh we'll we'll end there. Next time we will begin the preparations for attack by the ringwraiths, right? As we will uh see them talking and thinking in practical terms. Okay. Gandalf is around, but not here. We have to handle this ourselves. And, oh, the Nazgul are very close, right? What shall we do? Um, That discussion is the discussion that we will cover next week. And do remember, I am going to be here next week. I'm traveling to San Francisco this week, uh, and uh, we'll be back, but but I will be back in time. So I'll be be here for class on Tuesday. Um, Yeah, Bruce, we're not going to get to the poem next time. Totally no chance of that. Um, but maybe the time afterwards, and I will. I'm fixing to spend some time on this actually, because uh, I mean, big surprise, right? But this poem, um, this is my favorite poem actually. This is of all of Tolkien's short poems. Uh, uh, this one is my favorite. So, yeah. Oh, Lincoln, and thank you for reminding me. Um, uh, we do next week. We are having a Europe-friendly class. We're not, I've not done that in a long time. I used to do that uh, sort of regularly at the beginning, and I kind of got out of the habit. Uh, I do want to do that again. So yes, Europe-friendly time next week. Uh, we're going to start. At, <clears throat> excuse me, at two p.m. Eastern. Uh, so we, everything normal except uh, our start time, two p.m. Uh, so if you can't make it, I mean, we'll I'll post the recording as soon as we can. Um, but, um, but yeah, there we go. So, okay. Thanks again. Thanks for the reminder there. Um, okay. Um, you're going to be in PEI next week. Awesome. Awesome. PEI is so great. I love PEI. That's of course where I was last week, Prince Edward Island. Uh, my family goes uh, up there uh, every year. Uh, it's our sort of retreat place, uh, which I really love. My wife's a huge Ella Montgomery fan. Um, uh, so we love to we go up there and we walk around in the woods near Green Gables and we uh, just kind of relax and have a great time. So enjoy Prince Edward Island. 
Gogon Theory. It was awesome again this year, and I think we absorbed all the super hot weather, so it should be okay. Um, all right, so I'm going to sign off here on Twitter, and I'm going to shift over. We're going we're gonna to shift over to the game here, and we're going to do... Uh, we got to Weathertop, so we get to go to Weathertop in the game tonight. So I'm going to say good night to everybody on Twitter. Thanks for joining us, guys. All right. Good evening, everybody. Can you hear me okay? Oh, hang on a second. I'm, there we go. I'm hearing you now. All right, cool. Good evening, everybody. And yeah, weather top. Woo. Actually, hang on a second. I'm not hearing you yet. Uh, oh, dear. I'm going to turn my volume up. My. Call How's that a little better? Failing, I think. Hang on yeah. a second. <laughs> okay, the people on Discord said they can hear me. So that, there we go. Yeah, no, yeah, you're you're audible. Even I could hear you bleeding out of my other earbud. So uh, sorry about that. Uh, okay, <laughs> got you now. All right, all right. Okay. Um, cool. So, um, let's, uh, let's head out towards Weathertop. We got to, let's, let's explore the hill itself since we got to the exploring of the hill itself. Yeah. Um, and I think probably rather than trying to get cute and I guess we could theoretically take the horse to Kendyth's campsite, right? Uh, is that horse accessible from uh, from? Not from stables. No, no, I think no, no. You have from to go from to... from the cabin, right? I think only if you have VIP. Only if you have the quest or VIP. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'm not sure. It's been a couple of years. Okay. Well, let's not get cute then. Let's just go out by the road. It's All not right. that far. I was Saradin? thinking of Saradin. That's what it was. Saradin's cabin. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Okay. Oh, you do need the quest boomful. Okay. All right. Fine. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's it's like you need the quest, and then after you do the quest, you can use it as a stable point, but only if you have VIP membership or something like I that. I see. Okay. Okay, so let's go to the right. Oh, lagging. Hello. Welcome to Bree. <laughs> okay, there we are. Thank okay. goodness we're not in Hobbiton today. The Summer Festival reboot going on. Ah, uh, yes. So, the I'm I, you know, I was away and I'm having a hard time keeping track. So, they had the Yule Festival briefly. Yeah, they had and, like a And now Christmas in July kind of thing. Right, Christmas there in July. So there was a new quest, which I think I'm probably going to have to wait until winter crops up again, because I really want your take on this. Okay. They, like, invented this sort of Santa Claus myth involving a great eagle. Oh, wow. That is interesting. Like, the great eagle was supposed to drop off, you know, toys toys and candy to the good little children of Frostbluff. 
who huh. stay in, in the snowman field that was most sincere. No, I made that part up. But, <laughs> but yeah, just the idea of, okay, okay what, what is this, what is this legend? And uh, can we give it credence? And is this just something to make the kids behave in case, you know, tell them the eagle will carry them off? Who knows? So it, it wasn't a threatening story. It was a promising story? No, it story? wasn't a threatening story. Okay. It was a promising story, but of course the eagle got relayed and you have to get all the goodies from every creature in the frosty areas. So. Okay, okay. Um, but according to the terms of the quests, I just want to stop pausing for a second to... The terms of the quest are you have to... That, that the eagle was supposed to be delivering the goodies, but it got waylaid or distracted or bamboozled at some point, and now all the... The sweet meats are now all over the frosty regions of Middle Earth, and you have to fetch them. Okay. Okay. Or it'll be your fault that little Jenny doesn't have her mincemeat pie. <laughs> I see. Okay. Okay. Something like that. <laughs> all right. That's interesting. So, um, yes. What was there any? Ex- so it wasn't really. It was as. Uh, um, Oh, who was saying this? Oh, as uh, Kitriana was saying, it's more like getting candy deliveries from Gondor by Eco Express rather than um, ex- being explicitly sort of Father Christmas-ish, right? But, I mean, it is kind of hard to escape that connection. Um, yes. You know, in the sort of Yule context there. Mm-hmm. But, and it does give it a divine aspect if it's a task given to an eagle. Right, exactly. Um yeah. Like, like Manway's showing favor on right. these particular children of Middle Earth. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, another. Th- it, it is very interesting. I, I mean, of course, um, the idea of. Yeah, I, I've always felt that, you know, Santa Claus is like one of the, or Father Christmas, of course, <clears throat> is a really good illustration of the kind of things, the kind of thing that drove Tolkien crazy about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, and why, you know, the re- some of the reasons why, you know, I, 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 I think that a lot of people misunderstand what Tolkien didn't like about Narnia. Um, yes. Uh, not to say he was against Father Christmas by any means. <laughs> Right, we have exactly. well, lots of evidence. Lots of. of evidence of exactly what he doesn't like yes. is mashups. Tolkien was not a mashup kind of guy. He he did yeah, not no, enjoy mashups. He did not approve of the meat cute of theologies. <laughs> no, no. Um, so anyway, yeah, the idea that, um, but I can see the temptation of kind of smuggling it in. I mean, the whole eagle delivery of uh-huh. candy is um i mean it's it's very gentle right because of course the mm-hmm. thing one of the primary things that he wouldn't have liked about it are are the sort of you know the whole kind of mythos and theo- theology differences you know of like just bringing in something which is a which is a christian and 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 even post christian myth and symbol without um, you know, and, and, and bringing that into, you know, incorporating that into, um, his historically pre-Christian world, right? Tolkien would have yes, wanted exactly. nothing to do with that. And yet yeah. you do very, I mean, they're, they're kind of, 
they're flirting with it, but they're flirting with it in sort of appropriate ways, right? You know, there's exactly if you had to pick an avatar for some sort of you know dispenser of very mild justice, and you couldn't do much better than an eagle in this world, right? Right, yeah. Um, and it, it, it uh, because the eagles are sentient, it also begs the question: Is the eagle just doing them a favor, or is he on some higher mission? Right, right, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, a little it's, sad it's, they didn't know a polar bear, though. A little sad right. there wasn't a, a friendly polar bear named Karu. Well, but. that is exactly. <laughs> I, I um, you know, I. That was a rights thing, at least. At the very least, it was a rights well, thing. Well, sure. It, I mean, it, it, more, it was a, it more, it was a deference to his, like you said, you know, his desire not to muddy up the waters. But I'm sure tempting, right? I mean, it's, oh, uh, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, with, with the Father Christmas letters, it makes it even harder to sort of resist um, uh-huh. the, the Father Christmas, you know, the, the, the sort of Santa Claus connection, especially since, of course, although within the context of um, the Lord of the Rings, he might very firmly resist the whole, um, the whole, you know, Santa Claus ethos or anything even vaguely like it. The converse uh-huh. is not true, right? Within the Father Christmas context, he does not resist any crossovers. To, oh no! To, to, those elves, to, to those elves were uh, those elves were and goblins were very very Tolkien elves and stuff. Yes, yes, and even of course the similarities between the North Polar Bear and like Bjorn's intervention in the Battle of Five Armies. You know. Oh yes. Um, you know the battle with the goblins when, um, you know the North Polar Bear has such a wonderful time. Uh, exactly. It's very Bjorn like. Um, and Caro had a mouth on him. Yeah, yeah. And my favorite, my favorite connection. And this is one that uh, 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 John Ratliff pointed out um, in the history of the Hobbit is that if you look very carefully at the picture that he draws of the cave complex when ah. they go underground and they see the cave paintings and the goblin writing and the uh, and the and meet the cave bear and everybody. Yeah. Um, if you look carefully at his drawing, there's a little face that looks like Gollum peeking out uh, from behind a column. Um, yeah, you wonder if the people who did the goblin paintings in Goblin Town were inspired by that. Yeah, I think they were. Um, and uh, but uh, but anyway, yeah, it's 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 it is very cool. Um, but uh, anyhow, yeah, I. Um, uh, I can see. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's kind of a, the whole the 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 Yule uh, context, you know, has a has a very um, uh, has a very uh, uh, it's it's thorny, right? It's it's very thorny, yes. but, but 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 very yeah. tempting. Um, All right, to the matter at hand. To, to the, the matter, matter at hand. hand. Here we are at Weathertop. First thing I want to point to, which we've been seeing from a distance, but which I haven't really commented on yet because I wanted to wait till we got there in the text, um, is the the just looking from a distance at the description or at the 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 top of the hill. Uh, of course, the crown of Weathertop, as Tolkien describes it, just describes the ring of stones, right? So it seems relatively clear that the tower 
that Tolkien envisioned being is just like a a kind of fairly boring little tower, right? Like uh-huh. a, you know, you've got the hill, and then on top of it, they built a single column tower, right? That was just kind of perched on top of the hill, and the tower has fallen and been yeah. taken away, and all that's left are the the is the circular foundation of that one single open tower that was perched on top of Weathertop. Um, you know, he often drew towers like that. Very simple. It's not that every tower he ever drew was, you know, as simple as a stack of round blocks, but many of the towers that he drew, you know, he, he often clearly did think about towers that way. Um, the tower that they have envisioned here in the game is obviously much more complicated, right? We've got all these uh, flying buttresses. I really kind of like the way in which... Um, the way in which they have envisioned the tower. Um, yeah, JJ, exactly. He, uh, Tolkien often did seem to picture uh, uh, towers kind of like a chess rook. Exactly. Just a simple um, a simple um, uh, cylinder. I think I said cone before, which is, of course, not quite right. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, just a... Now those were a dime a dozen in England. Right, exactly. Um, so this is this is much more complicated. Um, it 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 was clearly larger. One of the effects that I think is that I like best about the the sort of buttress structure that they have suggested here. Right, these uh, not only the fact that there are walls down here; these could be merely defensive, if not for the evidence of what clearly looks like a buttress off to the side there, right? And I I mean on the lower level, not just on the upper level. Um, I have to admit, I don't really understand the inward-facing buttresses on the top layer. You know, maybe we'll look around at that a little bit more when we get up to the top. Are they buttresses, or are they possibly ways to get to other parts of the tower more quickly, like a walkway? Maybe. I don't know. Well, we'll see when we get there. But at the bottom, yeah. on the bottom one, that looks like a buttress down on the on oh, the bottom yeah. right. Um, yeah. Which, you know, again, these ruins as they are left here suggest to me something much bigger, right? Rather than just like a little tower on the top, on the crown, you know, just sort of perched on the crown of the hill. Um, this invites the thought of a much more imposing and presumably much taller uh, edifice that could have been built here on top. And that, on the one hand, seems both fitting for the sort of grandeur of the, you know, sort of the moment in the Arnorian, uh, 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 you know, kingdom yeah. when it was made. Yeah. Um, and as a prelude to the last alliance as well. So Right, exactly. Um so I do, I do like the way that uh, Lotro's additional ruins here um, do, do invite us to imagine something grander, something that would be more sort of a, uh, of the scope and kind of in the idiom of these other uh, Arnorian ruins that we've been that we've been seeing. Um, Amethorn, I also I really like that as well. I, I that was one of the first things I thought too when I first looked at 
Weathertop in game is that it looks kind of like Minas Tirith, right? From a distance here, especially the way that you see the different terraces and layers, right? And the tower kind of encompassing all of them. It's not exactly like it, right? It's not like we have the, you know, the promontory and pathways going in between. It's it's nothing exactly like that. And yet it's, yeah, it's also using the hill and not sort of dominating the hill. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. The way that it's, um, the way that it is kind of, uh, resting on the shoulders of the hill there as well as balancing on the top. Um, I think that's, uh, uh, I think that's kind of, that's kind of cool. I, th- I, I think that's fun, but I, but I agree. Emma Thorne, I, I, it, it, it kind of in that way with the terraces, uh, you know, sort of the overall shape of Weathertop, uh, did remind me of Minas Tirith as well. Um, so, Let's go up there. Of course, another thing that I immediately think is that those those walls look like they could be defensible, and they would also they would prevent. Presumably, there are winding paths that could be made up to approach the top of the hill from several different directions, right? So, one of the effects of all of these other ruins and extensions down the uh, down the hillside that we can see from here um, would probably have been to. Uh, uh, to to make it more defensible, to to cut off some of those uh, some of those roots up the side of the hill, um, and uh, Matt, I agree, it does give the crown of the hill uh, a crown like look, right? I mean, it's explicitly compared to a crown yeah. in the book. Here, that comparison is made a little bit more uh, obvious, right? If 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 we sort of imagine how it would look, right? take away all of those upstanding ruins, right? And just imagine that 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 ring, we, we can still see the ring, right? We can still see the ring of stone around the top. Um, you know, there is still a circlet up there. Um, but if that's all that we had, then um, it wouldn't look like much from here, right? Um Conceptually, it would still be like a crown on the on the head of the hill, but when you see it in the profile against the stars like this from a distance, it wouldn't look like a crown, right? Where this really does—I mean, it would look like a, a very delicate little circlet, but it wouldn't—we couldn't see that from here. Um, so yeah, I, I, th- that does seem to be a matter of them kind of taking that metaphor from the book or that simile from the book. And making that more visually apparent, in part, as yeah, well. Rather, rather well too. I'm very impressed. Yeah, I, 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 I do really like the crown sort of look. Anyway, all right, let's actually head up there now. Well, uh, it's always fun to read the book and have some things in your imagination, and then see how somebody else interprets it differently as an artist, and and goes beyond what you imagine and said, oh yeah, yeah, that totally works. I kind of wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, and that that concept too, you know. Uh, there are thinking about the crown thing, right? Um, I think that this is a really interesting example, and this is something that we see. Um, this is something that we see very often in uh, in Lotro uh-huh. places where they are being true to the spirit of the book and of the descriptions by. Uh, deviating from the letter of them. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so here I think is a really good example. They managed to convey very strongly the idea of the, um, crown on the top of the hill 
and they do that by putting in lots of stuff which is explicitly not there in the description in the book <laughs> because if they did follow exactly the description in the book it wouldn't look like a crown so much um i just uh, stumbled down of course upon the uh the wood right this is the the firewood that has been laid aside here which we yep. didn't get to in the text tonight but uh, we were almost there right that uh yep. sam and pippin found and which is the cause of hundreds of different find these particular ranger stores quests throughout middle earth <laughs> yes yes exactly uh okay and then we have the Hang on a second. Wait, where's the Dell? Did I miss it? Where did I miss it? Yeah, I thought I went, we went past it. I always get confused around whether to. Well, here's the here's the campfire. Oh, here it is. Here. Campfire. Yeah, I just well, I was looking at the waterfall when I went past it. I know. So was I. Okay, here's the Dell. Right. Okay. I love that we have that we've got the five logs around the fire. Right, where the five the five of them would have been sitting. Mm-hmm. I, uh, it's pretty well sheltered. Look how, yeah, it's just completely covered on all sides, so you can't see it from very far terrain. Yes, exactly. It is. It is definitely. It is a grass sloped dell, right? It's not a ravine or something like that. Um, Canyon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gilgear says from. Uh, uh, what he's saying, it looks almost like the actual tower was just the small central ring, uh, while the outer was a ring wall. Um, yes, most likely. I think that, well, again, we'll see more clearly when we get up there, but um, this certainly looks like the remnant of, of a wall and maybe of a bridge uh, across. I'm not quite sure what would have been at the top of this structure that's up above the camp right now. Um, yeah. But I do like how the hill sort of looms over them here. And the waterfall, this is the water that's nearby that where uh, Strider went looking for footprints, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. All right, let's see if we can find our way up the up the side of the hill I, here. I know of two ways... Now, this is not... Is this a way? Yes. We can get there this way? All right. Yes. Let's do that instead of going all the way around by the main road. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have plenty of time to twist around. I don't know that I ever went up this way. It doesn't look like you could, should be able to, but uh, you actually can. Oh, hang on. It's oh, a bit daunting. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I never did use that shortcut. Wow. <laughs> Man, my first time up here was for weather... My first time up this place was for weather stock a long time ago. That's how I found it, because I just followed the big line of people going oh, that way. Oh, right, right. 
Well, here we are. Charred rocks and one nice white rock. Right there. Okay, right. So we've got the we've got the char all over the place. Uh-huh. And what's Oh, is this burnt grass? Is that what we're seeing? Yeah. Yeah, grass and scrub. Right? Grass which is just as um mm -hmm. um Just, uh, just as described there, uh, and then of course, yes, we have the the cairn of charred ro charred rocks and the one white rock where we can on which we can see the scratches. They made this one quite a big one, too. When in my head, it was much more. It was almost like in the size of the palm of his hand or something. But right, the rock, yeah. Yeah. Now you were talking about like how would you know what a what a strange thing to put on a rock and how on earth would Strider know that? I mean, are is there any reason to believe that the rangers don't have a code for this sort of thing? I mean, lots of migrant people have had codes all the time. You know, the Romanies had them, um, you know, right. transients have their code that they'd scrawl on uh, the sides of buildings and stuff. A Boy Scout handbook has a whole bunch of codes, like, you know, this way is the emergency snow path. <laughs> right. That sort right. of thing. Right. Um, so. This might be like a ranger code or something, yeah. you know, or an elf code. Aragorn certainly doesn't respond as if it is. I mean, maybe he's being really understated and not <laughs> wanting to betray it, you know, to the hobbits. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, if if this were a clearly established code, I don't think he would sound so dubious about it, right? He'd be like. This is Except what this he's means. been second guessing everything. He's been second guessing everything so far. Yeah. That's the that's the thing about Strider. He definitely strikes me as somebody who's been forced into a leadership position and does and is always worried that someone's going to stop and say, "Now, who are you to tell me anything <laughs> right now?" It's like Doctor Who. You're waiting for that one person to go, "And who are you then?" Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, he is certainly very cautious right uh and and i would also add where's that caution very publicly you yes know? uh his he he does not mind showing people how he is second guessing himself right <laughs> um yeah yeah um Oh, by the way, just a side note before we continue that discussion. Uh, you're absolutely right, of course, about the size of the rock. If we look down at this and sort of imagine, you know, you sort of stand next to it, you know, saying this is handled recently, like, by whom? Andre the Giant? I mean, that rock would be really heavy, you know? Um, so, I mean, like, what does Gandalf bench that he's picking up that rock and putting it on top of that cairn, you know? And if he, did, and if he didn't pick it up, why is it white and not charred like the rest of them? Right, exactly. And I, I, think uh, it just, I think it's so we can, it can light up and we can select it for the quest. Well, that's it, yeah. It's, <laughs> this is a very frequent occurrence in Lotro that things are bigger, you know, things may uh, appear larger in the video game, you know, than they are uh, because if they were the right thing, if this were a pile of rocks, which were about the size of, you know, like a softball or something like that, you know, then um, it would look tiny. We wouldn't be able to see it very well. We certainly wouldn't be able to make marks out on it very well. 
Uh-huh. Um, so in order to make it visible, yeah, Druid's Fire, of course, is thinking of the Stone of Iraq. Yeah. And then that's a kind of a different issue as well. It's not just visibility. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you would have to get pretty close up to the Stone of Iraq before you even noticed it, right? Uh, given the size that it's Given described. the dimensions you have anywhere. Um, but, um, I like it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very common in Lotro that a lot of things are made bigger just so that they are more obvious. Strider might notice a smaller rock, but uh, you can't be sure that quest fulfillers are going to notice it. Um, yes. It's magnified for the yeah. visually impaired um, gamers. Okay. Uh, but anyway, oh, hang on, let's look at the architecture for a second. Then we'll come, I, oh, yeah, come yeah, back yeah. To the, How did we the miss that? Discussion. So what Ooh, do we see, we see here? A, I see a cloverleaf motif. Here, a low this. wall here. Which is circular. So was this the base of the walls of the tower? And it had the floor. We can just see the mm-hmm. edge of what is obviously an Arnorian star, right? Yes. That was in the middle of the base of the tower here. And then we, huh? but then we've got all this apparatus around it, right? We've got this the the makes it looks like this, this, this had windows here, in it. I think it had coming out, which looks like this was probably a buttress around the side of it. But then, see yeah. the crenellations so on the inner ring. This would buttress then supporting the interior tower. Yeah, but you see, yeah, these, these crenellations here. This is where windows would have been most here. likely. It's over here. You can see side. you can see the forms of the windows. Huh. There's a clover punched into this openings. wall over here doesn't look like that opening is original anyway that's just a break so yeah that's fine um but uh but yeah so this would have connected well up uh it's broken off pretty close to the base there so by the time it connected with the tower it would have been um you know i don't know what like the third story or something like that um could be suggesting that the tower could have been a very great deal higher than that some very dwarven forms in some of this. Interesting. Looking at the the, the Have we designs. Seen that? Are, I've never seen that design. The sort of wishbone design. And same, just same as the clover leaf design over here. I've never seen that either. Just looking at this, the edge up here. I yeah. remember seeing that pattern of carving before, but we must have done. Oh, there's there's also a very faint cloverleaf design over here on the edge. Do you see it? Right here, stamped out on the edge. Huh. Wow, this is something we've actually never seen in the game. Interesting. What do you make of this hole in the rock? Which hole? Oh, the cloverleaf design? Yeah. Uh, uh, looks like something you'd fire arrows out of more than anything. Yeah, it kind of does. It's pretty tall, though. Pretty, yeah, and it's high off the ground. Of course, so, I mean, that, the, the floor might have been different. Yeah. Are there any others, or is it just that one? I didn't see any others. Man, these windows would have been huge. With the arches? Yeah, the big arches here. Yeah. 
it's unless this was just my suspicion is that this would just be a, would have been a colonnade so uh-huh. it wouldn't have been enclosed like there wouldn't have been windows and walls but you know so you have the central tower and then around uh-huh. it you have the buttresses coming in to keep the tower from tipping over right um <laughs> And then, but then around between the buttresses that come in to support the central tower, you have these, uh, yeah. these are so, so that this, you know, this layer, this outer circumference would have been like a cloister or something. Yeah. Not exactly. Yeah, it like does. It, well, no, it, it, it does look like a walkway over here. Oh, by the way, Floyd and Dewitter out here, if anyone oh, yeah. wants to start that, that's a fun one. And oh. there's some really interesting designs. Out on that, both on the outer ring, which is totally made out of a different kind of stone too. I don't think we've seen stuff made. Well, you're looking stone at these, that looks like, like these circular rings. Yeah, well, um, yeah. Also, the stones we're walking on. Yeah, this motif here is and the very different. There, yeah. Yeah. Here's Floyd and Dewitt over here. Oh, right over here. Yeah, if you guys get close, you can start a deed. You have to find them all over Middle Earth. I love how, uh, you know, Dewitt just carries around booze. It's that kind of tourism, you know? Yeah. Which direction is he looking? Nowhere he is looking towards the Harlog, really. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the last bridge over there. He said, "Yeah, he's looking out over the last." I think the last he's bridge is more. Yeah, you're right. We're farther. We're farther west than I thought we were. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because that's the the bad encampment over there, and then right. Ostgoroth. Yeah, I guess it's sort of Harlogish area. On a, if it was daytime, we'd be able to see out a lot further. Yeah, so that's what I'm kind of hoping for. What time is it? It's oh, it's just getting dark there. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah, it only just got dark on our way here. Yeah, kind of a shame. Yes, it is. Oh, and there's the road. Okay, so let's look down at the road. I don't know if it's possible to fall off. I'm pretty sure I think you one can. Point, uh, I think some places you can, some places you can't. Really? I think that's how. Yes, that's how it goes. Huh. Um. Okay, so this uh, is not the road that Frodo was looking at. Not the road where he saw the Black Riders. The Black Riders were congregating about where we were congregated, looking at Weathertop from the other side. Yeah, almost like where the the camp was. Yeah. If we look out to the east, or to the west, rather, that's totally what I meant. Let's see. Can we see there is the road? Yep, there it is. Heading off towards Bree, there's the broken bridge, there's the forsaken inn. Okay. So Frodo would have been standing over on this side, looking down and thinking about the Shire, which yeah. 
In daylight, how far can we see? We can see the Forsaken, so we can clearly see past the edge of the Lonelands from here. Uh, right, I think we're seeing right the, the mossy green edge of the, the, yeah. the cliffs that surround the Barrow Downs. Okay, okay. So you can see all the way back to the Barrow Downs, certainly. And maybe a little bit of the marshes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they would have seen the Black Riders congregating on the road down here, which is interesting because that is the side of Weathertop that the camp is on, too. Yep. Yeah. So when they are, uh, when they go down the hill to find um, Sam and Pippin in the camp, they're going down um, really right towards the Black Riders that they just saw congregating. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah, so the ones on the Bree side... Interesting, I just thought of something that I never really thought fully thought through before. Of course, the camp is attacked by five of the Ringwraiths, and we know that four of them went off after Gandalf. Yeah. You know, that's why there are only five of them when they attack, because four of them have gone. Um, the five are congregating. Two are going from the Weathertop direction towards the west, and the others are coming from the west and meeting them, right? They're converging on the road, as Frodo is, yeah. des is, is describing them, which suggests that you had... They were divided, essentially, into three groups, right? You had the one central group there around Weathertop. You had others off in the west uh, towards Bree still, and you had uh, uh, others off further to the east on the Rivendell side. It's the ones on the Rivendell side that have gone in pursuit of Gandalf, and the others that are now congregating along. In other words, Gandalf succeeded in essentially clearing the path for them, right? Uh -huh. uh, drawing off the four that were guarding the land uh, on that side. Now, obviously, once the, uh, you know, the Witch King and, uh, and you know, his, the five counting him, uh, find them in the Dell, of course, they can, they can, it's not like the path will remain clear necessarily after that. Um, yeah, no. But it is interesting to see how, you know, Gandalf does immediately succeed in what he's trying to do, right, by taking off those that were presumably lying in wait. Those would be the same four which come in from the other angle and almost man do manage to cut off the ford at the end, right, when yeah. during the final gallop. I think at this time they're still uncertain as to how many are riding, so. Right, right. So for all Gandalf knew, he was all, you know, all four in existence were chasing him. Right. Okay. Well, too bad we too bad we did not get daytime. I, I knew we were going to miss it <laughs> as soon as I as soon as we set out. Um, so we could see exactly how far we can see. Maybe we can come back for a, a vantage point view if we get daylight next time. Um, yeah, I, I think we'll definitely be back. <laughs> yeah. But I I the way that they have accomplished several different things um, in their design of the of the of the weathertop ruins both managing to bring alive the the that imagery you know so the the, the fact that they have 
all these buttresses and things to sort of suggest how great this tower must have been, right? And they haven't stretched it. That is to say, this is still clearly just a military fortification. I mean, it's 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 functional. Um, it would have been able to be very much higher with the buttresses, so that um, this would have been. I mean, from the top of that tower would have been, uh, especially with Numenorean eyes, right? I mean, this would have been an amazing yeah. uh, uh, viewpoint. Um, and so they really emphasize that in showing like the the sort of you know advanced architectural technology of the Arnorian uh, folks who are building it. You know, so all that stuff is really cool. But um, at the same time, they don't um, uh, they don't uh, so they you know they they don't they don't totally change anything. They just kind of. Uh, uh, they just kind of uh, uh, sort of add that. And yet they also succeed in making it look like a crown from a distance, which is a pretty cool combination of things to do. It has a striking silhouette. That is is pretty neat. Okay. Um, uh, Let's... uh, So we should stop here because it's getting late. Uh, And yet... Emma Thorne, I'm thinking the same thing. If uh, we get, if when we start a field trip next time, it's daytime. We'll see if we can sneak back up here and look around, and we'll start from here next time and then move out. Uh, sure thing. Here. We'll get a better look at the campsite they're looking at. Right? Yeah. Cool. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining me, and uh, I uh, look forward to um, um, look forward to seeing you guys next week uh i'll be able to report that's the european server time that's european server time yes so next week at 2 p.m eastern um uh and uh we will see you many of you anyway then thanks for joining us everybody good night now bye Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.